Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 21, Anne of Bohemia, A Tiny Scrap of Humanity. The woman who was expected to be Queen of England after the death of Edward III was Joan of Kent. Joan was considered the most beautiful woman in all England, and had married the Black Prince in contentious circumstances in 1361. He was in fact her second husband, after her first husband, a crusader called Thomas Holland, had died. With him she had had two young daughters and two sons, Thomas Holland, who would later be Earl of Kent, and John Holland, who would be Duke of Exeter. With the Black Prince, she had two sons that only one of them survived, and his name is Richard. When the Black Prince died in 1376, Joan of Kent's attention fully transitioned to her son. Edward III was clearly ailing and would not live much longer, but Richard was still a child. Ensuring his accession would be tricky, as his uncle John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, was hugely rich, powerful, and most crucially, a man in his prime. Now whether John actually had plans to make a play for the throne is unknown, but given the man's ambition, I think it highly unlikely that the thought had not at least crossed his mind. This meant that when Edward finally died in 1377, Joan moved fast, and already had a deputation of Londoners petitioning Parliament to ensure that the ten-year-old Richard would gain the throne rather than any other candidate. An inheritance crisis thus averted, Richard was crowned as King Richard II on the 16th of July 1377, but his position was far from secure, and the dangers of a gaunt-led usurpation were far from over. Joan needed to secure allies for her son, and one easy way to do that was to arrange a marriage. But who to choose? The dilemma is well set out by Jean Foissart in his chronicle. Now, I have translated this bit out of Middle English into Modern English, so this may be an inexact translation as I have sacrificed absolute accuracy for clarity. Quote, There was a great council in England for all the king's uncles and the bishops and barons of the realm about who would marry the young King Richard of England. The people of England would gladly have had him married to a woman from Hainaut due to their love of Queen Philippa, wife to King Edward III, who was so good and so gracious a lady and also came from Hainaut, but Duke Albert had no daughters to marry. The Duke of Lancaster would have had the king, his nephew, marry his eldest daughter, my Lady Blanche of Lancaster, but the realm would not consent to this for two reasons. The first, because the lady was his first cousin, which was too near of blood to marry together. The other cause was that they would have the king marry outside the realm to secure a better alliance. 
Now, a foreign marriage at this point was fraught with diplomatic difficulty. To answer why, well, I need to talk about the Western schism. Okay, so what is a schism? A schism is when a disagreement within the hierarchy of the church became so bad that it effectively split into two or more parts. This was the second great schism of the Middle Ages, the first of which had happened in the mid-11th century, and led to the separation of the Catholic and Orthodox churches, the Catholic Church based in Rome, the Orthodox in Constantinople, a division that has lasted to this day. The Western schism is terrifically complicated and goes on for a long time, but for now I will only relate the early days as it relates directly to our story, and yes, I promise I'll get to Anna Bohemia soon. The first thing to note is that this had nothing to do with theology. This is all about politics. Since 1309, the popes had been residing not in Rome, but in Avignon. These popes were all French and were seen as being under the thumb of the French crown. The last Avignon pope, Gregory XI, had finally moved the papacy back to Rome, but when he died, everything fell apart. The Romans demanded that a new pope be elected there, and so Urban VI was elected, but he was not popular with his cardinals, most notably the French ones, who decamped back to Avignon and elected one of their own to be, delightfully named anti-pope Clement VII. Support for each side fell very neatly on party lines. Since the French supported Clement, then of course England supported Urban. Since England supported Urban, Scotland of course supported Clement, and so on. Now, of course, each side declared the other side excommunicated, and it was all a big giant mess. England, who had for some time now obtained their queens from France and Spain, now found those nations tainted by anti-popery. They were now wedded to the Holy Roman Empire, and so it seemed likely that any potential bride for Richard II would come from there. Richard was quite a catch, a young king of a belligerent kingdom punching above its weight, but of course this schism didn't narrow his choices quite a bit. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles IV, was keen on one particular match, though, for Richard, his daughter, Anne. Anne of Bohemia was born in 1366 in Prague, in the Kingdom of Bohemia, which is one of the constituent kingdoms of the Holy Roman Empire, and roughly matches up with modern-day Czech Republic. She was a member of the House of Luxembourg, a family that had controlled the Holy Roman Empire since 1308, as well as being kings of Bohemia. Her father Charles was married four times and had eight children that made it out of childhood. Anne was the eldest child born to his fourth wife, Elizabeth of Pomerania, and the fifth overall. She was raised in Prague in a remarkably cosmopolitan court, full of art, music, and learning. Her father wanted to emulate the proliferation of literature and culture that had flown from the court of the Emperor Charlemagne in the 9th century, and so she would have been exposed to far more learning than many of our queens. Not that she saw much of her father... Being Holy Roman Emperor was one of the most stressful jobs I can imagine, as governing such a massive and loosely arranged empire required him to be constantly on the move. This meant that her father figure was her brother Wenceslas, no, not that Wenceslas, and so it was him that did much of the negotiating for her marriage, and was expected to sort out her dowry. And there lies the problem. He had no money. In fact, he was demanding money from Richard. So... Why, under these circumstances, did Richard choose Anne? It wasn't like he didn't have another option. The Duke of Milan, another supporter of Pope Urban, offered him his daughter, plus a generous dowry. But Richard, or more accurately his advisers, were keen on the match with Anne. By marrying her, he could secure an alliance with the most powerful rival to France, and ensure that they did not capitulate and support the anti-Pope Clement. It was seen as diplomatically vital to secure this alliance, and they were willing to pay for the £15,000 in quote-unquote loans to secure it. 
Now, this match was not universally popular in England. Our dear friend Thomas Walsingham, who seems to have calmed down a little after bashing Alice Perez, was unhappy at how expensive the whole thing was. Quote, News came of the arrival at Calais of the new queen, namely the sister of the king of Bohemia, Wenceslas, who expected to be crowned emperor and described himself as emperor literally everywhere. So, when the king had chosen her, she was bought for a great price and with tremendous effort, although a great sum of gold had been offered to him for the daughter of the Lord Bernabo, Duke of Milan. The Westminster Chronicle is even less generous. Quote, it seemed to seekers after truth that she was not so much given as bought, for the King of England had expended no small sum of money for this tiny scrap of humanity. Being a high-status bride, she was accompanied to England by an escort, including the Duke of Tashen, and these were all also owed money on their arrival to England, over a thousand pounds all told. The importance of the match in terms of the geopolitics of Europe is shown by all the efforts made by the French crown to capture Anne on her way to England. She was forced to wait in Brussels for a whole month, as there was a great fear that French privateers would attack her convoy during her crossing of the Channel. The unpopularity of the match is shown by the small riots that broke out after a pageant was held for the royal couple in Blackheath in advance of the marriage. England was not especially well off after decades of war and plague, and this was seen as an unnecessary extravagance. The wedding itself, though, did go well. Thomas Walsingham relates it thusly, quote, After the Feast of Epiphany, all the nobility of the realm gathered at London to be present at the king's wedding, and to exercise office according to ancient custom. The imperial girl was anointed queen at Westminster, and she was crowned in royal wedlock by the Lord Archbishop of Canterbury with glory and honour. Tournaments were also held for some days in order to enhance such celebrations, and in them the English publicly demonstrated their virtues, and the Queen's compatriots their prowess. In these events, though, not without injury on both sides, honour was gained and military matters glorified. A quick side note, I mentioned in the episode about Alice Perez how these tournaments were like international sports events. Well, this is more like a match between England and Bohemia. It was all about each side massively showing off how rich a matcher they were, not showing themselves up against the other side and trying to gain a subtle advantage. Diplomacy is weird. So, Anne, at the age of 16, was married to Richard, who was about the same age, and was crowned as queen. She was queen of a highly fractious kingdom now. Richard is always put near the bottom of the ranking list of English monarchs, and unlike some of the quote-unquote bad ones, like Edward II or Mary I, he does have some quite prominent supporters. I think one problem is that he came after a series of highly martial kings, and he was not that at all. He was a man of art and pageantry, not swords and armour. He loved the idea of chivalry and invented new ranks of nobility like Marquis into the English peerage. He is even credited with inventing the handkerchief. He practised a policy of awe-inspiring splendour, insisting on being referred to as Your Majesty, and insisting that at formal crown wearings, any person whom he looked at should fall to their knees. Now, to modern eyes, this seems like the worst kind of megalomania, but let's not forget that we are talking about a time 650 years ago. Values were different back then. One of the key pawns in this policy of splendour was Anne. Unlike her predecessors, who had spent a lot of time on campaign trail, following their husbands while off in France or Scotland, Anne lived a very luxurious life, even though she too spent a lot of time travelling, and seems to have had much more of an interest in fashion than politics. She was no Isabella. She was very happy to play the role of the deferential wife. 
Being a queen from a very different courtly culture than that of England, she is credited with bringing many new fashions and ideas to her new home, such as the idea of ladies riding a horse side saddle and the peaked horn headdress, which is quite possibly the most ridiculous fashion accessory I have ever seen. I put some images in the show notes. She also brought over from Bohemia a new style of manuscript illustration, and is seen by some as a turning point in the direction of English medieval art. They had hot and cold running water coming out of taps in their palaces, glass placed in palace windows, and elaborate gardens set up in their favourite haunts. These two really did like the finer things in life. And though did not spend all her time relaxing in all this luxury, she did, you know, do things. She continued to patronise Queen's College Oxford, the pet project of Philippa, and even had the Bible translated into English so that she could better understand the language. This love of splendour that both Anne and Richard shared was not popular, especially in a time when the kingdom was hardly awash with cash. In 1383, while English troops were fighting on the continent, Richard and Anne went on a tour of England's abbeys. Here it is in the Chronicle of Thomas Walsingham. Quote, The King of England and his Queen, with her Bohemians, went on a circular tour of the abbeys of the land. The demands they made on their arrival at each abbey causing great distress, for they arrived with such excessive numbers that each abbey was in default rather than profit from their coming. For example, the monks of Bury St Edmunds spent 800 marks on the king and his queen and their entourage during the ten days that they spent there. He goes on to later say, quote, When the days of his expensive stay in Bury were completed, the king hurried straight to Thetford and then to Norwich, where he received two saintly gifts from both monks and laity, who seemed to find themselves dealing with two evils at once. For it was not enough to give great gifts to the king, unless equal gifts were provided to the queen as well. And then the people would not have objected to paying honour to the king by giving him such vast presents, if they had been seriously kept for the use of the English. But whatever money of theirs was grabbed by his greedy hand, he immediately gave away, over generously, to the queen's foreigners. Walsingham was never a fan of Anne. Indeed, he isn't really a fan of any woman in his chronicle. And it's interesting that he makes sure to pick out Anne and her bohemian attendants for special criticism. The royal court would have moved with a great number of people, but Walsingham feels the need to pick out the dirty foreigners forcing poor monks to spend all their money to entertain them. This harks back to the days of Eleanor of Provence and the Savoyards who dominated the court of Henry III. This accusation of frivolous and unnecessary expenditure would dog Anne for the rest of her reign. The great social highlight of the reign was the tournament at Smithfield. Richard, being the cultured hipster king, of course did not compete in this tournament, but instead liked to sit on his throne and be the centre of attention away from the lists. This is medieval pageantry and ceremonial chivalry at its best, and is related in great detail by Jean Foissart. Now, I'm going to quote extensively from his account here because it shows really rather marvellously where the women of the court, and the queen of course as the chief woman, stood in this highly scripted and prescribed occasion. Quote, The King of England ordered grand tournaments and feasts to be held in the City of London, where sixty knights should be accompanied by sixty noble ladies, richly ornamented and dressed. The sixty knights were to tilt for two days, that is to say, on the Sunday after Michaelmas Day and the Monday the following, in the year of grace 1390. The sixty knights were to set out at two o'clock in the afternoon from the Tower of London with their ladies and parade through the streets down Cheapside to a large square called Smithfield. There the knights were to wait on the Sunday the arrival of any foreign knights who might be desirous of tilting. And this feast of the Sunday was called the Challengers. 
The same ceremonies were to take place on the Monday, and the sixty knights to be prepared for tilting courteously with blunted lances against all comers. The prize for the best knight of the opponents was to be a rich crown of gold, that for the tenants of the lists, a very rich golden clasp, they were to be given the most gallant tilters according to the judgment of the ladies, who would be present with the Queen of England and the great barons as spectators. He then continues, quote, This Sunday, according to proclamation being the next to Michaelmas Day, was the beginning of the tiltings, and called the Feast of the Challengers. At about three o'clock, there paraded out from the Tower of London, which is situated in the Square of St. Catherine, on the banks of the Thames, sixty bided courses ornamented for the tournament. On each was mounted a squire of honour, but advanced only at a foot's pace. Then came sixty ladies of rank, mounted on palfreys, most elegantly and richly dressed. Following each other, every one leading a knight with a silver chain, completely armed for the tilting. And in this procession, they moved on through the streets of London, attended by numbers of minstrels and trumpets, to Smithfield. The Queen of England and her ladies and damsels were already arrived, and placed in chambers handsomely decorated. The king was with the queen. When the ladies who led the knights arrived in the square, their servants were ready to assist them to dismount from their palfreys and to conduct them to the apartments prepared for them. After the first day of the tournament was over, Fouissard then describes what happened next. Quote, Towards evening, the Count of Ostravon arrived and was kindly received by King Richard and his lords. The prize for the opponents was adjudged to the Count of St. Paul as the best knight at this tournament and that for the tenants of the Earl of Huntingdon. The dancings were at the Queen's residence in the presence of the King, his uncles and the barons of England. The ladies and damsels continued their amusements before and after supper until it was time to retire, when all went to their lodgings, except such as were attached to the King or Queen, who, during the tournament, lived at the palace of the Bishop of London. This tournament went on for several days, but the descriptions get rather repetitive, so I will leave it there, but I think it is a really fascinating passage. The Queen is... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...mentioned quite extensively here. Indeed, I think she's referred to more in this bit than exists for many queens at all in any narrative source. It shows how segregated society was. The queen and ladies are portrayed as being very separate from the men of the court. 
there is an undercurrent of the idea of the distressed damsel, with the ladies of the court each leading their champion to the lists and then cheering them on from their position of safety. They are definitely shown as being second class to the knights, but the queen does seem to come across as being a more elite status than the other ladies. She is very much singled out here, and that is important. She is playing the hostess here, with the dancings being at her residence and the guests staying there at her invitation. The role of the queen as the manageress of the court and organiser of social functions is very important, and one of the oft-forgotten roles and responsibilities of queenship. One thing, though, that she was not doing with her time was producing heirs, because, to put it bluntly, she couldn't. After a succession of queens who produced armies of babies, it is easy to forget that childbirth was not something that could, or indeed can, be taken for granted. She was far from the only queen to have problems in conceiving, and she would not be the last, just ask the wives of Henry VIII. Due to the fact that she did not survive Richard and remarry, it is hard to know whether this was due to infertility on her part, or whether it was for some other reason, but many have theories as to why her union with Richard was childless. One is that the king himself was infertile, with many pointing the fact he had no children, legitimate or illegitimate. Another is a contemporary accusation of homosexuality, though it is relevant to point out that this did not stop Edward II from having children. Some have also accused the king of having a childlike personality, that sexual intercourse was just not something that interested him in the slightest. Finally, some have suggested that he made the decision on his own to remain chaste, using the example of Edward the Confessor to instead claim a spiritual union with his kingdom rather than with a woman. Evidence for the fact that chastity was a choice made by Richard is that, in 1385, with the Queen only 19, he named his heir, the 11-year-old Roger Mortimer, the great-grandson of the lover of Queen Isabella. Now, this is all past the build-up to the coming War to the Roses, and it is terrifically complicated, but the gist of it is that there was an argument about who the throne would pass to should Richard die childless. He had come to the throne young, and there was no heir presumptive. The first candidate was through what is known as the lines of the heirs general, to the descendants of Lionel, Duke of Clarence, the second son of Edward III, or the heirs male, i.e. John of Gaunt, the third son of Edward. The problem with the heirs general line was that it passed through a woman, Philippa, daughter of Lionel, who had married into the Mortimer family. There was a general move in Europe against allowing the succession through the female line, especially in France, and so the succession of Roger Mortimer was by no means certain, not aided by the fact that he was only 11. Now, by naming his successor early, Richard may not have been ruling out the possibility of having children of his own. This may just have been an attempt to forestall any ambitions of Gaunt by nipping it in the bud early, but it does seem strange that he would make such a crucial decision so early in his reign. Now, this does not mean that Anne of Bohemia's reign was a failure at all. By all accounts, she and Richard shared a very happy marriage and made a good partnership. This was not like the childless unions of Henry I and Aunt Eliza, or Richard I and Berengaria, where the two kings paid little interest in their wives and let them play no real role in the governance of the kingdom. Indeed, Anne seems to have played an active role in the classic queenly duty of intercession. At this point, though, I think it's worth taking a little step back. The reign of Richard II is fascinating, and I could get entirely lost explaining all the complex politicking that went on, but the problem is that Anne was not hugely involved, or indeed much affected, by a lot of it. It would involve a ton of names, groups and meetings that frankly distract from this story. Therefore, this episode is going to largely blow past an awful lot of this, and just go to where Anne really had an effect. As we will see, she wasn't a queen that liked to position herself at the heart of events. She was someone who knew the place expected of her, and the duties that she was and was not supposed to accomplish. 
Therefore, to provide some context, I will give you a quick overview of Richard's reign during the life of Anne. I would, though, strongly recommend that you check out some other podcast history of the reign of Richard or one of the excellent books on him, because there is just so much going on that I will just blow past. For example, check out how at no point in this episode do I even mention the Peasants' Revolt. Well, apart from just then, and also, if I'm honest, in two sentences' time. Richard II's reign was extremely turbulent, with revolt and coup always on the horizon. From the Peasants' Revolt of 1382 up to 1386, things were going pretty well, but then he had a dispute with Parliament over his Chancellor, Michael de la Pole, and a few other favourites which ended in basically all his close allies being executed or banished by a group of nobles known as the Lords Appellant. Not a great start. There was then a period of uneasy peace, where Richard, with the aid of his uncle John of Gaunt, regained control of government, but for now they did nothing about these Lords Appellant, which included, amongst others, his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, and Henry Bolingbroke, the Earl of Derby, who, if you've read ahead, will later become Henry IV. Now, this peace would last until the death of Anne of Bohemia, so I will stop there, but keep in mind that at this point England is essentially a powder keg just waiting to explode. Anyway, back to intercession. Anne's role in all of this high politics was fairly limited, as I said. With Richard not off campaigning all that much, she wasn't called upon to perform any regency roles, and since she did not have a child, her status was fairly limited. She did, however, play a role as a peacemaker, an important role given how tense England was at this time. The most famous example of this came in London in 1392. It had been a hard year for England's great city. Plague was rampant, food stocks were low, prices were high, and now Richard was coming at them for tax. There were riots at the news, and the city refused to pay the loans demanded by the king. Richard was not especially well disposed towards London, as they had not helped him out during his dispute with the Lord's Appellant, and so he was not in a mood for compromise. He marched into the city and dispensed some summary justice, imprisoning the mayor and two sheriffs, revoking the special privileges of the city, and imposing massive fines. This was hugely provocative. No king could last long without the support of London. It was the beating mercantile heart of the kingdom, and lay close to many of the centres of royal power. Richard then moved the legal courts to York, depriving London of yet another sign of its high status. The citizens of London begged Queen Anne to act as their voice in the court, to intercede on their behalf against a king who clearly had the city's destruction in mind. This is what happened next, according to the Westminster Chronicle. Quote, at length, through the intercession on behalf of the Londoners of friends, conspicuous among them the Queen, who more than once, indeed on many occasions, both at Windsor and at Nottingham, prostrated herself at the King's feet in earnest and tireless entreaty for the city and the welfare of its citizens, that he would cease to direct his anger against them, and would not let so famous a city and its teeming masses perish without due consideration simply because of the burning passion of its enemies." The king's mild and kindly nature was moved by pity, and persuaded by the queen and by others among his nobles and prominent men, he forgave the Londoners of all the offences against him, on the condition that... And then there is a rattling off of essentially a fine dressed up as a generous peace term. Now, let's not get carried away with overplowing Anne's hand here. This was clearly a carefully choreographed occasion, and not something it is likely that Anne would have done on her own initiative. That said... This does show that she was involved in the running of the king to some degree. She was not pushed aside. The people around the king believed that she could play a role, one that she seems to have played perfectly. It also seems clear from the sources that she spoke from a position of sincerity. 
She knew her husband, how his anger could get the better of him, and it's very possible that she was an architect behind this plan, even if she was not THE architect. It wasn't just to the king that she would use her intercessionary power. In 1388, during Richard's conflict with the Lord's Appellant, the Queen pleaded with the Lord to the lives of Simon Burley and some judges allied to the King. With the King essentially removed from power in favour of these Lords Appellant, the King was reliant on Anne to use the subtleties of queenly persuasion to talk around Parliament. She was unable to save Burley, showing the limits of what she could accomplish, but according to the Chronicle of Henry Knighton, she managed to save the judges. Quote, on the intervention of Anne, Queen of England, with the Archbishop of Canterbury and other bishops, the King, with the consent of the lords against whom they had sinned, pardoned their lives, but they were disinherited like the rest, both they and their heirs, and were outlawed to Ireland by a published statute never to return. Not many of the King's supporters were spared by the Lord's Appellant, and this is the one occasion that the Queen is presented as having attempted to save the life of some of her husband's supporters. This does suggest that her intervention may well have been key. Note, for example, that she is listed before all of those bishops, not an ordinary order of hierarchy in a chronicle. This reputation that she has for intercession is further shown in one of the only contemporary images that we have of her, which is of her interceding on behalf of the people of Shrewsbury to the king. Now, I cannot for the life of me find out what this is all about, but you can find an image of this in the show notes, and depending on your podcatcher, you may see it as the thumbnail accompanying this episode. One final example that we have of Anne and English politics concerns the marriage of Robert de Vere. Robert was a favourite of King Richard's, one of the many whom the Lord's Appellant would later target. He was the Earl of Oxford by birth, and then got the title and responsibilities of Duke of Ireland from the King. He was a very rich and powerful man, and thus was granted the singular honour of a marriage into the royal family, the King's first cousin. According to the Westminster Chronicle, quote, That fellow, Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland, had married the daughter of Ingram of Cousy and the Lady Isabella, daughter of King Edward III, Having taken a great dislike to her, he sent John Rippon, a cleric, to the Roman court, i.e. the Pope that England recognised, to get a divorce. He worked so hard at this that he brought back a sentence of divorce obtained by false witnesses assembled for that purpose. This behaviour greatly displeased the Dukes of Lancaster, York and Gloucester, the ladies' uncles. After she was finally repudiated, that same Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland, wickedly united in matrimony with a certain bohemian woman of the Queen's chamber, called Lancacrona, though the Queen always strongly disapproved. This was a real big scandal. To repudiate such a high-status wife in favour of a mere lady-in-waiting was unthinkable. We don't know much about this new wife, but it is rumoured that she was a far lower social standing than Philippa. De Vere was already intensely unpopular, and so this was yet another stone to be thrown at him. Now, Anne's position on this is a little unclear. The Westminster Chronicle that I quoted above very much states that she did not approve, but some other sources suggest that she actually backed up her lady-in-waiting at a cost to her own personal popularity. Whatever the reason, the Queen is continually mentioned in relation to this scandal, which is somewhat surprising given that she normally seems to have kept her head down at times like this. Finally, Anne too had a modest reputation for piety. Being a chaste queen, she had an advantage in this regard. It seems that she enhanced her reputation for piety, though, by doing all the traditional things that queens who wanted to have a pious reputation did. She is described by Thomas Walsingham as being, quote, a woman exceptionally dedicated to God, a lover of almsgiving, a friend of the poor and the church, a supporter of true faith and justice, and a practitioner of secret penance. 
We don't know much in detail, though, about the details of her religious devotions, other than this rather general praise given by Walsingham, but we do know that she brought the cult of St Anne with her, a fairly obscure one that venerated the mother of the Virgin Mary, as she wrote to the Pope in 1382, asking that she be able to promote this cult in England so as to raise its prominence. Anne's time as Queen so far has been fairly nondescript, and now it is at an end. On the 7th of June 1394, Anne died at her favourite palace of Sheen at the age of just 27. We don't sadly know how she died, as the sources are very vague, but we do know that the king was distraught. According to some, he ordered that the entire palace of Sheen be razed to the ground and refused to enter any building that she and he had spent time in. Now this seems a little excessive, but there is no doubt that this was a great personal tragedy for the king. The two of them had been inseparable for their entire marriage, indeed there are few greater love matches in all medieval England, and certainly none between a couple whose time together was ended so early. Her funeral, though, it seems to have come straight out of some sort of an Australian soap opera. Here it is, as related by Thomas Walsingham. Note how even in death he still can't get over how much the Queen cost England. It really is his pet peeve. Quote, her funeral rites were notable for their cost, outdoing all others of our time. The king, for some trivial or non-existent reason, was annoyed with the Earl of Arundel. He seized an attendant staff and hit him so violently on the head that he fell to the ground, and his blood fell copiously over the flagstones. The king would gladly have killed him in the church had he been allowed. This was done at the start of the funeral office, and he was compelled to postpone the office of the dead while the priests of the church hastened with the rites of reconciliation. It was late at night before the funeral's completion. The cause of the king's anger was that the earl was not present at the procession and bearing of the queen's body from St Paul's Church to Westminster, and because when he had arrived late, he was the first of all to ask the king for permission to leave for certain pressing concerns. This really is the picture of a grieving king, losing all sense of protocol as he comes to terms with the death of his beloved wife. Now, this is a rather simplistic view, as Richard had what some historians have diagnosed as a form of bipolar disorder that manifests itself in rages, but there is no doubt of his affection for Anne, as shown by this long, extravagant funeral that he required all his nobility to attend and respect. The final sign of the closeness of the royal couple is shown in the effigy on their grave in Westminster Abbey. After his death, he was entombed with Anne in an expensive tomb that he had designed, and this effigy showed them holding hands, affectionate in death as they had been in life. Nigel Saul, in his huge biography of Richard II, describes Anne as leaving, quote, a blurred impression on the pages of history, and I think that sums her up rather well. In an era relatively awash with source material, she turns up in bits and pieces, rarely mentioned in any great detail, meaning that we have to make quite a lot of assumption based on scraps of information. She is not aided either by the fact that she died young. If we look at the careers of some of the longer-lasting recent queens, like Isabella of France or Philip of Hainaut, you can see that they did not do much in their teens or early twenties, only really coming of age in their thirties and beyond. Now for them, this was largely because they would spend their younger years continually pregnant, something that of course Anne, for whatever reason, did not or wasn't unable to do, but it is very possible that had she led a few more years, she could have had a far greater impact. Although criticised, especially in her early years as Queen for not bringing in dowry money and being an unnecessary drain on the public purse, she ended her reign as a much-loved Queen, far higher in the non-existent opinion polls than her husband was. 
there is also a suggestion that she had been a stabilising influence on her husband, who, in the next few years, was about to go into his final downward spiral, with his reign descending into tyranny and war. Next time, we will delve into the tyranny and war by looking at Richard's second wife, Isabel of France. She would not be queen for very long, though, as the reign of Richard II was about to come crashing down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.